This is Richard Zink from the Biopharmaceutical Section of the American Statistical Association. Today I'm talking with Karen Price, Research Advisor in the Advanced Analytic Group, specifically the Bayesian Methods Leader for the Adaptive Program at Eli Lilly and Company. She is also the current chair of the DIA Bayesian Scientific Working Group, where she collates the safety subteam. Uh, good morning to you, Karen. Good morning, Richard. Thank you for this opportunity. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind, uh, if uh, you could give us some details about your statistical background. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, I received my Ph.D. in statistics from Baylor University in 2001. My dissertation work was under the advisement of uh, Professor John Seaman and was related to the use of Bayesian methods. And I also received extensive Bayesian training during my time at Baylor. Um, I joined Lilly in July of 2001 and have worked at Lilly for almost 13 years in a variety of positions, uh, including previously supporting a compound that was being tested for diabetic complications, and I was also a project statistician supporting our global patient safety organization. I have led the Bayesian expert team, which is a group in, the Lilly, in Lilly's advanced analytics hub for the past three years. Well, how did you first become interested in statistics? Uh, I actually became interested in statistics when I was in college. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in mathematics, and at that time I uh, found a, a flyer related to the use of uh, statistics and the different career opportunities that um, statisticians have, and I was really attracted to the fact that as statisticians were able to work with so many different functional areas, um, including clinicians and pharmacologists and biologists, and so that was very attractive to me and would enable me to continue to leverage my, my skills in mathematics. So um, after that, in, in graduating with a mathematics degree, uh, then I went on to pursue my PhD in statistics. Very good. If, uh, if you don't mind, if you could uh, give us a little bit more description about uh, what your current role is at Eli Lilly and sort of explain the benefits of the Bayesian methodologies uh, to the work you're involved in. Sure. Um, so I am currently part of what I think is a very exciting initiative at Lilly. As you mentioned, it is called Science Driven Adaptive Program. This effort is led by Brenda Gatos, and um, also, as you mentioned, I lead our Bayesian Methods efforts. Uh, in terms of the benefits of Bayesian Methods at, uh, in my work, there are um, many benefits of Bayesian Methods for myself as well as many others at Lilly. We have a strong team of statisticians who are focused on the use of Bayesian methods at Lilly. Um, and there are a number of ways that we're using Bayesian methods. To give one example, um, we use Bayesian methods to synthesize available information um, so that we can better understand our current belief regarding a compound's performance, including its performance relative to competitors. So we use things like Bayesian network meta-analysis to understand the compound's performance relative to competitors. Um, this allows us to better understand and quantify our uncertainty in terms of the compound's performance, and we can do this for both efficacy and key safety endpoints. Um, this, in turn, can inform future trial designs as we include this information um, into our trial simulations, and so we're able to optimize our planning. Uh, this type of information is also used in submissions to regulators as well as to health technology assessment groups um, as part of uh, the, the payer package. Another example I could give is that we're more routinely using Bayesian methods to assess the strength of evidence associated with potential tailoring opportunities. So in order to 
really understand whether or not a biomarker or a subgroup may truly identify a patient population that would have a better benefit-risk profile for a specific compound, we need to take into account our prior belief about that um, particular biomarker or subgroup. And as data accumulates, then we update this belief. And this is how we can um, better quantify the strength of evidence regarding tailoring opportunities. And then this also, in turn, informs future study designs that may focus on specific patient populations. Um, this second example is an important aspect of our tailoring efforts at Lilly. Uh, we do have a tailoring analytics group, and this group is led by Lei Shen. And um, so he is, he is driving on these efforts to increase the use of Bayesian methods uh, in our tailoring efforts. Um, so these are just a couple of examples of how Bayesian methods are beneficial in my work. There are many others, and, and we do see the use of Bayesian methods across drug development, from discovery to early phase and to planning phase three and in the post-marketing area. Are there any day-to-day -day challenges in trying to implement the methods uh, or communicate the results to, to other groups, such as uh, the clinical group? There are definitely challenges that we encounter. Uh, in terms of communicating Bayesian results, um, particularly you mentioned maybe with clinicians or um, other scientists that are non-statisticians, I, I guess I have often found that the medical colleagues that I work with often prefer Bayesian results. And that is that sometimes they then find that they have been interpreting p-values the same way that one interprets a Bayesian posterior probability. So they tend to be quite comfortable with um, understanding how to interpret Bayesian results. Uh, perhaps initially when clinicians or other non-statisticians that I'm working with are new to Bayesian methods, there is certainly a learning curve that happens. Um, because the terminology is new and, and there's always a period of learning, but they, they tend to um, tend to in, appreciate the Bayesian results that we can provide and, and the posterior probabilities and predictive probabilities um, that Bayesian methods uh, afford. Now, in terms of implementing Bayesian results, uh, I think that historically there has been a real challenge in having access to computational options. So I can reflect back to um, when I first started working on this uh, several years ago, uh, simply having access to a software package such as WinBugs was difficult because in a larger company we, there are certain IT procedures and um, we also have validation standard operating procedures as statisticians that we need to be able to follow. And so we weren't sure how to do that initially in, in a company such as, as Lilly, a larger company. Um, but we worked through those and at this point we are now um, able to quickly get access to a variety of packages that conduct Bayesian analyses, including R and Bugs and JAGS and STAN, as well as, of course, SAS has now um, Bayesian procedures such as PROCMC-MC. Uh, so this aspect of things has improved substantially. Uh, we do still tr struggle at times to find individuals who are skilled in Bayesian computation, either to write code or to validate code. Um, however, we do have an education plan in place, and we are growing in that expertise. And so that is also diminishing, but, but it certainly is a, a struggle that we have, a challenge that we have um, that we're working to overcome. I think one more important challenge within drug development that we encounter is the perception that regulatory bodies will, will not accept Bayesian methods. And I think there is often an internal hurdle that we have to get over um, in order to convince a team that we can't propose a Bayesian approach. 
um, certainly there are pushbacks from regulators, and um, so that perception is not completely unfounded. Um, however, I believe that it is vital that we propose high-quality Bayesian analyses and designs to regulators in order to facilitate conversations uh, between the pharmaceutical company and regulators. And it's through those conversations that we'll be able to better understand concerns they have and ways we may address them, and thereby uh, smoothing the, p the path forward. Do you see the Bayesian trials being more uh, successfully implemented in the earlier phases of drug development? Or are they acceptable in uh, phase three trials? Thus far, um, we have seen primarily in early phase uh, is where the Bayesian trials are happening. Um, and, and, and to your point, yes, less so in phase three. Um, what we have done is look at opportunities for implementing Bayesian methods for the analysis of safety data um, or on secondary endpoints or in certain study types, maybe in subpopulations, um, perhaps in pediatrics or in situations of rare disease where it would be important to implement a Bayesian approach. But indeed, I think um, overall the, uh, the majority of studies that we're seeing thus far are more in earlier phase and then analyses tend to be um, either in early phase or post-marketing. Now, you're involved with the DIA Bayesian Scientific Working Group. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with that group and uh, how you ended up becoming the chair? In two th late 2010 and, and early 2011, uh, I had several conversations with others who had been actively involved in other similar types of groups. Um, either had led them or, or been involved in, in other groups. There were a number of pharma working groups at the time. Um, and so I, I talked with some of my mentors and my supervisor to uh, understand more how to create a group like this, how to propose it, and, and how to get people together. Um, so I learned a lot from others. And at that time, um, the scientific working groups, there were scientific working groups that were being formed under the DIA. Um, and so I proposed this Bayesian group, and I reached out to many both within and uh, external to Lilly, and we formed a group. Um, we came together, started meeting, and those who were, in, who were initially involved are all very passionate about Bayesian methods, and they're um, all very excited to further their use, uh, their appropriate use in, in medical product development. So we agreed upon a mission and identified a set of projects that we would tackle together. Um, initially, there were some 30 projects that we came up with. And given the breadth of the topics that we knew we could work on, we prioritized those topics and formed subteams who would work together on that topic. Uh, the subteams are, are really where the, the work is done. Um, these teams implement case examples and publish papers teach short courses, um, organize sessions, and so forth. And um, it's really been an exciting group to, to be a part of. Um, I'm able to interact with a variety of individuals from different functional areas across regulatory, academia, and industry. And I think it's really opened up opportunities to have um, conversations and discussions, as well as conduct research together and have strong collaborations. So are the, are the members of this, this team primarily all statisticians, or, or do you have clinicians or, or other scientific areas represented? The group is primarily composed of statisticians. We do have other functional areas represented, including clinicians. And um, we also have pharmacologists and 
people who are in the decision sciences groups of their organizations to give a couple of examples. Uh, but it is primarily um, statisticians, and we do hope to grow in terms of um, identifying more members in other functional areas where needed. Part of the uh, communication, the DIA working group, you recently edited an issue of pharmaceutical statistics, the official journal of statisticians in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, which was entirely devoted to Bayesian methods and drug development. Uh, can you briefly tell us how this opportunity came about? The special issue that you're referring to came about initially via conversation between myself and Lisa Lavange um, in her role as an editor-in-chief for the journal Pharmaceutical Statistics. She had attended a couple of meetings of the DIA Bayesian Scientific Working Group and had proposed we think about a special issue that would focus on the use of Bayesian methods in medical product development. Um, as a team, we, we were eager to jump at this opportunity. And as we discussed it further, we identified the specific subteams that would be able to submit papers for consideration in this issue. And then with working with Lissa, we also identified some other papers um, from the pool of regular submissions. So it's primarily through the initial conversations with Lissa that the special issue came about and, and then progressed from there with working with the team. Are there any particular uh, highlights uh, or articles in this issue you want to uh, mention? The issue showcases four papers from the DIA Bayesian Scientific Working Group. There are four additional papers selected from the, the pool of journal submissions, as I mentioned. Um, the four papers from the DIA Bayesian Scientific Working Group cover three main areas. The first paper is focused on education and summarizes a survey that was completed by the DIA Bayesian Scientific Working Group education subteam. This team is chaired by Fani Natanagara and Beat Neuschwinder. Um, the safety subteam provided two papers in this issue, and, and one is related to network meta-analysis and its use in, in drug safety meta-analysis. And there's also a safety trials paper, which evaluates challenges associated with designing and analyzing safety trials and provides some suggested Bayesian opportunities. And then the fourth paper was written by the prior subteam, and this was shared by Nelson Kennersley at Roche and Scott Berry with Berry Consultants. Um, the lead author is Kurt Veal, and this paper, I think, is a, a really nice example of Bayesian approaches for borrowing of historical information and examines the impact of things like um, uh, it, it evaluates the dynamic versus static borrowing and the decision process that one should take in determining whether or not to borrow historical information. Uh, the, the four other papers expand the range of applications. So there is a paper on non-inferiority non margins. Um, there's a guide to Bayesian group sequential designs. Um, there's a paper that looks at PKPD modeling. And then there's also a paper in the post-marketing setting which evaluates impact of unmeasured confounding and cost-effectiveness studies. So I think the key takeaway and highlight is that um, while these papers don't represent every opportunity for the use of Bayesian methods and, and medical product development, we are able to demonstrate that Bayesian methods have an impact throughout the process. This is the first issue for, um, for this year, so it's the January-February 2014 issue. Where do you see Bayesian methods in pharmaceutical development in the next 10 years? For example, do you think we'll see a, a Bayesian-only drug or device submission? Maybe, and, and I think in terms of their use, they, I would imagine over the next 10 years they will continue to grow. 
Um, there are many important activities that are happening to further encourage their appropriate use. Recently, there have been press releases on the I-SPY studies. These are fully Bayesian studies, and um, certain compounds were, were graduated to the next phase for further evaluation. And these, are, these decisions to move compounds forward are based completely on predictive probabilities of success. So that's one, uh, one great example of fully Bayesian studies being utilized. Um, as we talked about earlier, we see the use of Bayesian methods in early phase continue to grow. Um, in some companies, in oncology, dose escalation studies, um, those are fully Bayesian. And then also in oncology, we do have several examples where we're formally borrowing historical information in oncology, for example. Um, so I think that while it's hard to predict, we, we very well may see a drug submission um, that is fully Bayesian in the next 10 years. But I think for me, that is not really what success looks like. Um, to me, it's more about being able to use the right method, whether it's Bayesian or frequentist, to address the problem at hand and to optimize the designs we do. And so I do hope that we can get to a point in the next 10 years where a Bayesian approach would not be rejected due to hurdles such as computation, education, or perception, but rather that we would be able to utilize the best approach to most efficiently and ethically ensure that compounds that are coming to market are safe and effective and are given at the right dose to the right patient population. So to me, um, because it is all about speeding innovative medicines to the patients we serve, um, and I believe that Bayesian methods play an important role in this endeavor, uh, I'm excited about the progress that we've seen, and, and I believe we'll, we'll continue to grow in, on that over the next 10 years and eventually get to the point where it is about what is the right method and the right design to get the medications to patients. Well, Karen, I thank you very much uh, for your time in describing your experience and what you hope to see in the near future uh, with Bayesian methods. Uh, I think uh, the listeners will really get a lot out of this conversation. Thank you very much.